Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blood of wicked proportions. An accidental company. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode number 6 of the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This one for Friday, December 7th, 2018. We could call this the I Am Uhtred, Son of Uhtred edition of the Bobcast, which only means that if you stick around long enough, we're going to talk later about some Netflix recommendations, as well as some other TV shows and series I've been watching. And maybe I will talk like a Viking. I'm not sure Vikings talk like this, but they seem to, based on the shows I've been watching. It's also the, I just came back from the new Terminal B at LaGuardia Airport and I cannot believe how nice it is edition of the Bobcast. Oh man, oh man. This is a funny story actually. Um, As you know, I think you know, um, most Wednesdays during the regular season, I fly from Toronto, Pearson International Airport to LaGuardia and uh, to go and do my thing at NBC in Stamford, Connecticut on Wednesdays. So, uh, same routine, and get off the plane Wednesday morning, walk up the jetway, and it's a weird feeling when you anticipate you're just about to do something you've done every week for years, and suddenly the entire thing is completely changed. So think about this for a moment. You walk into your house every night. You know exactly what it's like. Okay, so now picture walking into your house, and it's not your house anymore. It's like a Twilight Zone episode. Anyways, long story short, I walked out the jetway and I expected to walk into the long, narrow hallway that is Terminal B, the Air Canada section at LaGuardia. It's dark, it's dingy, it's a low roof, it's crowded, it's old, it's decrepit. And I walked out and there's this magnificent, airy, light, glass everywhere, windows, the amenities, the restaurants, the bars. There's a Shake Shack. There's a Shake Shack at Terminal B in LaGuardia. I walked out and I had this terrible feeling like, oh my God, I got on the wrong plane. I'm in the wrong city. What the hell? And then I thought, okay, um, they've they've obviously moved Air Canada at LaGuardia. Maybe I'm in a different terminal now. Um, Where am I going to catch the shuttle? What am I going to do? When I realized suddenly they've just opened the new terminal for Terminal B and it is glorious absolutely glorious. Anyways, um, a lot has most certainly happened in the hockey world since last we left you on on episode five. And so let's discuss some of those things that have happened. So welcome to Seattle, the NHL's 32nd team this past week. Big news at the Board of Governors meetings in uh, Sea Island, Georgia. And I'm really happy for Seattle, happy for the National Hockey League, because Seattle is a really cool city. Now, I say that, and I haven't been there in a really long time. The last time I was in Seattle was for the Memorial Cup in 1992. Uh, would have been, I guess, I, I want to say they played out of the, what's was called the Seattle Coliseum then, held, held 14, 15,000 people. 
Um, that was the year that Zach Boyer of the Kamloops Blazers scored a goal, I believe, with 14 seconds left in regulation time to lead the Blazers to the Memorial Cup over the Sioux Greyhounds. That Blazer team, if memory serves, Darcy Tucker, Scott Niedermeyer, Tyson Nash, Tom Rennie was the coach. Um, so that was a great Memorial Cup, and it was great to spend a better part of a week in Seattle. And I've never had the reason to go back since then. But um, now maybe I do. Um, but anyways, before the Memorial Cup, the first time I went to Seattle would have been in 19, I want to say it was the 1990 season. 89-90 was the first year we did junior hockey on TSN. And that was at the tail end of Glenn Goodall's junior career. And he, he played like about 16 years of junior hockey, it seemed, for the Seattle Thunderbirds. Myself, Paul Romanek was the play-by-play guy. Um, we went to do games there, and it was without exception the best junior hockey experience you could imagine. Uh, I want to say Russ Farwell was probably the general manager back then. Maybe Peter Anholt, who's now in Lethbridge, um, was the head coach, and it was it was just packed. As I say, I don't know what the the capacity for the Coliseum was twelve thousand, fourteen, fifteen. It seemed like a lot, and and the, 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 it just rocked. It was the best junior hockey experience. The fans were right into it. I always thought of Seattle as a great hockey city, a junior hockey city anyways. And uh, they used to, you, you can't do this anymore because I think Gary Glitter turned out to be a pedophile or a perv or something. But um, his old song, Rock and Roll Part 2, you know, na 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 hey! And that wasn't very good, but nevertheless. Um, after every goal, that was their goal song. And the entire place in unison would stand up, clap, and punch the air. And the whole building would vibrate and shake. And it was just a fantastic junior hockey experience. So when... Uh, I've known for quite a while, obviously, that Seattle was angling for an NHL team and it was only a matter of time, but I really think of it as a, a tremendous hockey city from those old days with the Thunderbirds and, of course, the more recent incarnations of the Thunderbirds. Matthew Barzell played there and what have you. So it's going to be interesting now to see how um, the whole thing unfolds. they got to get a name. Um, Seattle, what are they going to be? Is it Seattle Totems, the Metropolitans? Sockeyes was the the winner, I guess, of a uh, online poll in the Seattle Times. Um, and then you got people with Sasquatch and Kraken and all these other sort of more off-the-wall names. It'll be fascinating. The, the one thing I would say about the name, talking to some people who are associated with the Seattle bit, is, is anything and everything is on the table. And um, in fact, so much so that it's not 100% guaranteed that the team would be called Seattle. Um, now, they they can't call them Washington. <laughs> you know, so the Phoenix Coyotes became the Arizona Coyotes. They went with the state name to try and appeal more to the state. They can't do that in Washington because last time I checked, there's already a Washington in the National Hockey League and the defending Stanley Cup champions. I guess you could call them the Washington State whatever, but that almost sounds too college, too collegian for the National Hockey League. And whether they go to Pacifica or Cascadia or Cascade or Puget Sound or Pacific Northwest, uh, whatever regional name you come up with, it's just not going to have the same direct coolness as Seattle would. Seattle's become a cool city, really cool city. And so I got to think at the end of the day, it will be Seattle in the name. But 
I was told, listen, don't assume anything. Uh, there's going to be a lot of brainstorming sessions on both the first and the last name for the Seattle team. As for the colors, I've just kind of assumed that they would just do the Seattle thing. I mean, green and blue, blue and green, uh, not that difficult. Um, and Seattle Thunderbird colors were that and, and have been. And uh, obviously the Seahawks. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, there's a team called the Vancouver Canucks, and they've gone back to their traditional blue and green. And uh, I don't think that Seattle's going to be able to or would want to just try and adopt the same colors as the Canucks. So um, maybe all all new names and uh, all new colors too. And and to the idea that blue and green or green and blue is the trademark color of of all sports in seattle and the pacific northwest u.s pacific northwest um, it was suggested to me that the washington huskies are very popular in the pacific northwest and they wear purple and gold anyways um, all i know is this uh, I'll, i'll try to get to seattle for games but by the time they actually start playing in the fall of 2021 as has been well documented by the great chronicler dickie dunn Um, I'll be living in a Florida retirement community by then. The other big news uh, that happened since the last Bobcast was done, William Nylander signed with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yay! Yay! We don't have to talk about Nylander anymore, but we will anyways a little bit. Uh, The best part, bar none, of Nylander signing with the Toronto Maple Leafs is that Gord Miller owes me a bottle of very expensive Barolo wine. Um, it was actually a week ago today. I was on the radio with Gord doing Leafs lunch. And he said, what's going to happen? And I said, I think he signs. And he goes, you want to bet? And I go, yeah. So Gord took uh, not sign, not play for the rest of the year, or not sign with the Leafs, but gets traded as his options. And I took signs with the Leafs as mine. And we put a expensive bottle of Barolo on the line. And guess who won? And and to be honest, the, the whole Nylander thing went down exactly the way I thought it would. Um, right at the last minute, more money than David Pasternak uh, gets from the Boston Bruins, but less than $7 million a year. And I will say this about what, from a financial point of view, Nylander kind of knocked it out of the park here. Because um, there's two ways to look at this. He's actually receiving $41.77 million for the balance of this season and five more. If you were to take that five and three quarter seasons of pay 41.77 and extend it so that for the time that he missed, extrapolate it, if you will, that's a a six year, $7.5 million, uh, the equivalent of a six year, 7.5 million per uh, contract. And even as it stands, it's literally just shy of six times seven, six years, just barely under seven million and what happened is something that i wasn't sure was going to happen and that is nylander was effectively made whole for missing the first quarter of the season the fact that the leafs gave him the two million dollar signing bonus uh, in the first year basically covered him off for money's lost by sitting out and um and and so i i think you know a lot of people will say ah you could have done this deal in september or october no, you couldn't, um, because I, I don't think the Leafs would have given him close to $7 million before the season began. Uh, 
And I don't think, quite frankly, he would have taken it either. He was angling for eight or more. And the Leafs were angling for six. Yeah, and they sawed off somewhere in the middle, and maybe that's predictable. And and I guess the Leafs could have played real hardball at the end with Nylander and uh, said to him, no, we're not giving you a signing bonus for this year. Take it in salary and, and take it on the chin for missing the first quarter of the season. And if they had done that, they might have saved, I think it's about $185,000 on the cap per year, year two through six. And the fact that the Leafs still got the cap hit at 6.96 for years two through six under the $7 million mark, that's what they were trying to accomplish. So they didn't want to, uh, they didn't want to go to Armageddon nuclear winter over the sake of 185 on the cap and a point of principle on Nylander. So they made him whole for the time that he missed. So good on the kid for, uh, for that, I guess. Now it's on to Marner's and Matt, Marner and Matthews. <laughs> uh, no rest. And uh, as we've talked about multiple times in the past, you've got all these restricted free agents, Line A, Connor in Winnipeg, Ajo, Carolina, Timo Meyer in San Jose, Besser in Vancouver, Matthew Kachuk in in uh, in Calgary, Wierenski in Columbus, McAvoy in Boston, the list goes on and on and on. Oh, uh, let's not forget um, Miko Ranton in Colorado and Braden Point. In, in Tampa Bay. So um, there'll be all sorts of talk in Toronto, much to the chagrin of many now about Marner and Matthews. And I do believe the Leafs want to be more proactive than reactive on that whole front. So now that Nylander's done, I think they are going to try to reinitiate talks and, and try to get something done sooner rather than later with both Marner and Matthews. Um, now, the, the flip side is here that the, the, the problem you're going to run into in the short term is that it doesn't seem as though Marner or Matthews wants to go first. Each guy wants to see what the other guy gets, um, or so I'd be led to believe. And as the old saying goes, if no one goes first, then it's going to be a long time before anybody gets anything done. And wouldn't it be funny if the Toronto Maple Leafs adopted that philosophy and said, you know what, we don't want to go first. Let's not be proactive on this. Let's be reactive on this. So let's see what Colorado does with Miko Rantanen. Let's see what Tampa does with Braden Point. Let's see what Patrick, what Winnipeg does with Patrick Line. Because you can make a case, certainly Marner versus Rantanen or Marner versus Point, that Rantanen and Point are having just remarkable seasons. Rantanen could win the Art Ross. Um, Point's been absolutely fantastic. Line, the goal scoring totals that he's putting up, I mean, Matthews, was derailed by injury, of course, and his goals per game is the best in the league. But, um, you know, the, the November that Line had. So, you know, what if Rantanen does win the Art Ross? What if Line wins the Rocket Richard? What if Point puts up huge numbers that eclipse both Marner and Matthews? And, um, and, and I'm not saying for a moment that Rantanen's going to do a soft deal in Colorado because his agent, Mike Liut's not going to do that. And Liut, by the way, also represents Patrick Laine in Colorado. And so, but it, it's interesting in some of these other cities, Colorado, for example, um, you know, the Nathan McKinnon contract, he's making in the $6 million range. And McKinnon is arguably as good a player as there is in the National Hockey League right now. He's top three, top four, and Easily could have won the heart last year and might win it this year. Um, in in Tampa, with with when Braden Point starts to look at his deals, you've got, you know, Kucherov did a bridge deal before he hit the home run 
deal that he had. You know, Hedman took a less than market value deal to stay in uh, in Tampa. And with Line in Winnipeg, I'm not saying that he can't get, you know, nine, ten million plus. Um, but, you know, there's Shifley making in the sixes. There's Wheeler making eight. So in each of those cities, there's what I would call a moderating influence um, that doesn't exist in Toronto. So when I, if Marner and Matthews are looking at the Leafs up front, you know, there's Tavares at 11 million. Nylander missed the first two months of the season and got close to seven. There's, there's not anybody there that Marner or Matthews would say, oh, I feel bad making three, four, five million more than this guy. Um, but maybe that dynamic works a little bit in Colorado and Tampa and Winnipeg. And it might also be that Marner or Matthews just say, you know what, we don't care what goes on elsewhere. We feel like we're important guys with the Leafs and we're um, we're going to push this thing as far as Nylander did and get what we feel like we're owed. So anyways, uh, we will see where all of that goes and the whole restricted free agent market in the National Hockey League um, between now and next summer is going to be totally redefined in a lot of ways because of all those players that uh, that I mentioned. There was also big news on the World Junior Hockey Championship front this week. Um, Hockey Canada announced that Edmonton and Red Deer have been awarded uh, hosts of the 2021 World Junior Championship. Not the first time those two cities have hosted. Uh, that reminds me very much of 1995 when Edmonton, Calgary and Red Deer shared the World Juniors, and that was a that was the Dream Team World Juniors. Uh, if you remember, that was the year of the, of the full season NHL lockout, and uh, that was the best hockey we saw, the World Juniors in uh, the 95 World Juniors. And uh, not to suggest it would happen again, but it is worth noting that if the CBA uh, does expire in the fall of 2020, and that's a possibility, and if there were a labor disruption and no hockey were being played in December of 2020 slash January of 2021, then the Edmonton Red Deer World Junior Championships of 2021 would also be in another lockout year. Nah, not going to happen. I'm, uh, I'm crossing my fingers. There's going to be no labor issues. The players are not going to reopen. The owners are not going to reopen. And the CBA is just going to roll right through 2020, 21, no problem whatsoever. I should also point out Calgary and Edmonton co-hosted the uh, the World Juniors in 2012. So back to Alberta in 2021. And it's, it's worth noting here that if you count this year, the 2019 World Juniors that start here in a few weeks um, in Vancouver and Victoria, Canada will be playing host to the World Juniors six times in the next 13 years. So it's Vancouver and Victoria in 19, Edmonton and Red Deer in 2021, and then unspecified venues locations in 2024, 26, 28, and 31. Now, everybody's going to want to know who's going to get those. Where are they going to go? Where's, where's, the, where's the 24 World Junior Championship going to be held? Well, let's talk about the timing of when we might find that out. I think probably in two years we'll know. Um, probably in the fall or early winter of 2020, just prior to Edmonton and Red Deer dropping the puck for the 2021 World Junior, we will know where in Canada 
that 24 World Junior will be held. And I think it's interesting to look at this year's World Juniors, Vancouver, Victoria, and 2021 with Edmonton and Red Deer. And you can see a bit of a trend or a blueprint from Hockey Canada there. One NHL city, one junior hockey city. Vancouver's an NHL city. It's also a junior city, but it's an NHL city. You get my drift. And Victoria is a junior city. Uh, Edmonton, National Hockey League city, also a junior city, but an NHL one. And Red Deer, junior city. So what that would suggest to me is in 2024, we could be looking at Ottawa in a junior city or Winnipeg in a junior city. I suppose we could call Quebec City kind of an NHL city. Um, it's not because the NHL is not there, but it's got an NHL level rink if that matters. Um, but then the folks in Saskatoon would say the same thing about uh, their their arena. So I, I guess probably the next question I would get asked from a lot of people in Halifax or London or places like that is, does this mean that, you know, non-NHL cities not near it? Because I can't imagine we're going back to Toronto anytime soon or, or Montreal necessarily. I guess we could. Maybe there is another Toronto in there somewhere. Toronto and London, how would that work? down the road in 28 or 26 or 31. Uh, I, I don't know. But um, I wouldn't rule out Halifax, but it's not going to be easy if they if they do follow that uh, that blueprint. Anyway, something to keep an eye on. It's all long-range planning and, and what have you. But um, six times in the next 13 years, World Junior in Canada. Uh should also point out Team Canada released its camp roster, as did all the other countries over the last week or two. Um, so um, I'm going on Monday to Victoria for Team Canada's final evaluation camp. That should be fun. Um, but the Americans, the Swedes, the Russians, the Czechs, they all released their camp rosters. And uh, we'll see how all these teams shape up, who gets NHL help, who doesn't. The Finns have got all sorts of guys in the NHL, and they're not probably going to get a lot of them. really hurts their cause. Um, but I'm just looking forward to going to Victoria for the uh, the World Junior Camp. I've never been to Victoria, British Columbia, um, so maybe I'll do high tea at the Empress Hotel. Is the Empress Hotel even there still? I don't know. Anyways, um, we'll find out. Uh, one other final thing before we move on here. Um, this will be the first World Junior Championship that I'm covering um, that it doesn't include my old pal Jim Johansson, who was uh, headed up the USA Hockey's um, junior program and uh, program of excellence, for lack of a better term. That's our Canadian terminology. But uh, he headed up the whole American, uh, the World Championships, the World Juniors, the whole nine yards. And, of course, uh last January he passed away and it, it feels really really weird to be going into a world junior championship and not to be picking up the phone and calling JJ and getting the rundown on what the American team is going to look like it's going to be a really weird feeling and it just reinforces um, how much we miss uh, Jimmy Johansson um, and it's just quite frankly it's just not going to be the same so um to Jimmy Johansson's friends and family, I know you feel the same way I do, that uh, J.J.'s missed incredibly all the time, um, but never more so than uh, when we head into an event like this that he was synonymous with.
All right, then, before we get to um, your questions on this episode of the Bobcast, you know what time it is? Yeah, you know what time it is. It's Untuck It time. It's time to uh, take care of our great sponsor uh, who's on the Bobcast, and that would, of course, be Untuck It. Um, I think the Limerick thing, you know, there once was a man from Nantucket and uh, doing that. I think that thing's run its course, to be honest with you. So, you know what? We'll just play this one straight. It's December. It's time to go Christmas shopping. Um, run out and grab my book, Everyday Hockey Heroes. <laughs> I had to get a little self-promotion in first. Uh, seriously, go buy the book. It's a great book and uh, make a great present. Um, but here's what you really need to do is uh, if you happen to be in the greater Toronto area, you want to run to Sherway Gardens and go to the first Canadian retail store for Untuck It and uh, do some great men's shirt shopping. Um, And failing that, jump online, and anybody can do it, and uh, go order a nice shirt for uh, the men in your life, Uh, the man in your life, or... Failing that, just go buy yourself a really good shirt. And as the, the the pitch line says, it's never a good look when you untuck a long, bulky dress shirt. And that's why Untuck It makes shirts specifically designed to be worn untucked. It's a casual shirt that's not too long, not too short. And Untuck It shirts are a go-to for any occasion from casual to dressy. And they've, listen, so many sizing options. Every guy can find the perfect shirt. It doesn't matter whether you're rail thin. It doesn't matter whether you're jacked. It doesn't matter whether you're a little on the portly side, as I tend to be. If you go to untuckit.com, you can check it all out. Check out all their new fall and winter arrivals. And be sure to use the promo code BOBCAST for 20% off your purchase. Think about that. 20% off. We're saving you some big money. So uh, stop hiding your shirt with your pants and your pants with your shirt. Go to untuckit.com and use the promo code BOBCAST. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T and get your 20% off. Okay, let's get to some questions. And and the first one's an interesting one, and it's kind of going to spark what I would call a a deep dive on uh, a very important subject. So um, this first question on this episode comes from Ryan Wicks, who on November 10th sent me the following email. Hey, Bob, you went in pretty hard on the Uber driver in Arizona. So I wanted your black and white take on Austin Watson. First, let me say I stopped watching the gross NFL years ago due to domestic violence and how they handled it. Now, Austin Watson hit a woman in a car. No arguments. The league then says 27 game suspension and the arbitrator says 18. Meanwhile, I was over here calling for Tom Wilson to get a year or miss all of the playoffs but can I even care about him anymore when a domestic abuser got less games to this point? This is enough to stop watching NHL for me if unresolved. Thoughts? Question mark. I think the NHLPA is trash for appealing this. I think this is still a league that secretly came out against kneeling for the anthem, allows brutal hits, and now protects domestic abusers. Basically, this league is still run by white dinosaurs. I thought the NHL was above the fray back when they got rid of Slava Voinov. Nope, they seem to be taking notes from the NFL. Any feedback on air, even if you don't mention me, would be much appreciated. 
I want to know if all of your listeners know about Watson, and I'm curious if they will just overlook that so they can keep watching or supporting the NHL guilt-free. One of the many reasons I never give NHL ratings, if I need to see a game, I'll stream or steal it from Reddit, F. Gary, and the NHLPA. Austin Watson pleaded no contest. He was one of the Preds last year that participated in a stop domestic violence campaign. 18 games. Yeah, go F yourselves. NHL, NHLPA, Predators. A millionaire who's going to get a pass because we must be entertained? Question mark. I'm not even throwing him in jail, but 18 games. I remember serving time in the brig in the United States Marine Corps for disrespect to an officer. Laugh my ass off. This dude gets 18 games for pushing his girlfriend. Whatever is the NHL thinking. Again, don't gray area this one, please. You had no issue calling an Uber driver all the names, despite not knowing all the details. I've asked multiple podcast hosts the same question regarding Watson. Looking forward to everyone's opinion, especially yours. Respectfully, Ryan Wicks. Okay, um, there's a lot there. Now, I should point out that four days after that, and it was after Tom Wilson's suspension got um, reduced, Ryan followed up just to um, uh, take note of that. Um, so there's that. And then two days after that, he came back, and this was after Austin Watson had actually started playing hockey games again. His suspension had ended. And he said, uh, urging me to speak out on this, I respect and understand we can't touch that or talk about that take from everyone regarding Watson. But I promise you, if you don't talk about it, no one will really. This is how it starts. Um, he goes on to say, Ryan does, I have personal experience with domestic abuse several times over. Not a sob story. I just want you to know I think I found a path to better society and I get the ideas, knowledge from my own experiences. That path is to stop looking at sports like an escape when, in fact, they get all the loopholes while negatively impacting society. So that's from Ryan. So as I said, there's a lot there. One second here. Now, um, I'm just gathering my notes. Um, this obviously is a very serious topic. And, and before I get into my own thoughts on this specifically, I, I do think we should make everyone aware and up to speed on exactly what happened in this Austin Watson case because if we're going to talk about it we should really know as much detail as we possibly can. Austin Watson of course plays for the Nashville Predators first round pick veteran NHLer and last June he was charged with domestic assault in Franklin Tennessee. Now I have in front of me here and I'm looking at Katie Strang's article from The Athletic on June 20th. Now Katie by the way has done some really great work on a lot of really serious subject matter, social and legal issues as it relates to sport. And in Katie's story in The Athletic, uh, it says, a Franklin Police Department officer was flagged down by a witness outside a local shell station around 7 p.m. on June 16th for a possible domestic situation. The officer arrived on the scene and noticed a vehicle at the station whose passenger was trying to back away from being shoved. According to the affidavit, the passenger was saying stop and was trying to cover her face. The complaint later went on to state the 26-year-old Watson told the officer that he and his girlfriend, quote, were having an argument about her drinking and not being able to attend a wedding. 
unquote. Watson admitted to the officer that he pushed his girlfriend, according to the complaint, and the officer, quote, found red marks on her chest. A witness also confirmed the initial incident. Watson, an Ann Arbor, Michigan native, was released on a $4,500 bond and is scheduled to next appear in court on June 28th at 1 p.m. He's being charged with a Class A misdemeanor assault in violation of, and then it goes on to list uh, a lengthy uh, numerical code that doesn't really apply here. Um, so that's the, the basics. Now, in, in July, late July, I guess, uh, let me see, July 24th, Watson pleaded no contest to a misdemeanor charge of domestic assault. And police released more details from that file, and some of it was in the uh, the Tennessean. Um, the criminal investigation, this is from the Tennessean. Criminal investigation in the National Predators forward Austin Watson started after a witness saw the athlete swat his girlfriend outside a gas station and block her from getting out of their Jaguar SUV Newly released police reports show uh, the the witness uh, said, quote, the SUV pulled up quickly into the gas station parking lot outside, um, just outside the gas station. Uh, after the witness saw the couple fighting and flagged down a passing, passing officer, the victim initially denied Watson had touched her. Later in the interview, she said Watson was responsible for causing scratches on her chest, the 31-year-old victim is also the mother of Watson's child. Who is also the mother of Watson's child, told police that quote sometimes he gets handsy, unquote. Although the report did not elaborate on what that entailed. Following his July 24th plea, Watson was placed on judicial diversion, which means if the veteran player abides by terms of his three-month probation, his case will be expunged. If Watson violates probation, he faces up to a year in jail. Watson's probation conditions included 26 weeks of a batterer intervention course, an inpatient treatment for drugs and alcohol, and that he maintained peaceful contact with the woman in the case. Okay, as we follow the chronology, now on, a, on September 12th, the National Hockey League suspended Watson for all of the preseason and the first 27 games of the regular season, and that was subsequently appealed by the National Hockey League Players Association on behalf of Watson to an independent arbitrator, as is permitted uh, within the CBA. Now, on October 11th, independent arbitrator Shyam Daz reduced the suspension from 27 games to 18 games. And in the here's a story in USA Today um, and reacting to the reduction of the suspension from 27 to 18 and a quote from the National Hockey League who put out a statement that day. We firmly believe the right of appeal to an arbitrator of league discipline was never intended to substitute the arbitrator's judgment for that of the commissioner, particularly on matters of important league policy and the articulation of acceptable standards of conduct for individuals involved in the National Hockey League. The NHL added, we will not hesitate to adhere to and enforce through firm discipline as necessary the standards of personal conduct we feel are appropriate for our league. That was from the, um, from the NHL. Now, the NHL Players Association issued a statement that says the NHLPA takes domestic violence seriously and continues to work with the NHL to ensure that players are educated on this important societal issue. 
As part of those efforts, the NHL and NHLPA conduct domestic violence awareness training at our rookie orientation program and during the season for all NHL players. The CBA provides players with the right to appeal discipline imposed by the NHL for off-ice conduct to an impartial arbitrator. This essential right is intended to encourage the fair and consistent application of discipline. The arbitrator's independence helps ensure that the process and decision are fair. That is a principle to which we should always strive to adhere, even in cases where the subject matter is as difficult as domestic violence. And there's more. Now, in the immediate aftermath of the arbitrator's ruling, Austin Watson's girlfriend and mother of his child, Jen Guardino, released the following statement. The incident that took place on June 16th, however, was not an act of domestic violence. Austin Watson has never and would never hit or abuse me. My behavior in state of intoxication led to the police being involved that day. I have struggled with alcoholism for many years and I'm actively involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I am fortunate to have Austin's continued support with my treatment. We handled matters poorly on June 16th and know that we need to make better decisions going forward. I take full responsibility for my actions on that day. I would like to sincerely apologize to everyone involved for the negative attention that followed this incident, including the Nashville Predators community and the city of Nashville. Okay, I I know I, I just laid a lot of info on you. Um, but I thought it was important that we establish the facts um, and the timeline if we're going to discuss this. And and so uh, with regards to Ryan's letter, um, with regards to all that I just talked about, there's an awful lot to unpack here. And And as I said, I wanted to be very specific with the information we have available so everybody understands it. So now Ryan Wicks asked for my black and white take. He said, don't gray area this one, please. You had no issue calling an Uber driver, all sorts of names, despite not knowing all the details. Well, Ryan, I'm going to try to do that, and we'll try and take this one step at a time. First off, and let me say this as a generalization, and I think this is really important. If anything has become like painfully apparent to me in the last number of years, it's how incredibly poorly so many women have been treated by, by so many men. The, the whole Me Too movement, Time's Up, I I think have have really pulled back a curtain on the level of of widespread abuse on so many levels. And to to be quite honest, I I think it's sickening. And I think we, and that's men, but society in general, we need to be better, to do better on, on so many levels. Now, I never talk politics here. I won't go down that rabbit hole. And I do not, under any circumstances, want to, um, I don't know, politicize how women are treated or mistreated. That's not the point here. But I will tell you this. Um, I was watching Dr. Christine Blasey Ford testify to the U.S. Senate um, months ago here. And and for me, I found it to be a very powerful and, and painful illustration of how traumatized and damaged so many women are by how they've been mistreated and assaulted, both sexually and, and other assault by men and and again please do me a favor here don't don't make this about the left or the right about democrats or republicans or politics what i'm talking about here in the very narrow focus is 
I saw a woman who'd suffered badly at the hands of a man and, and a woman who felt for whatever reason felt compelled to, to speak out about that. And, and I, and, and probably knowing full well that if she's to do so, that there would be even more trauma and more damage um, as a result of that speaking out. And so my own personal opinion, that to me took an incredible amount of courage and it also underlined to me the gravity and the extent to which women are being treated horribly by men. Now, on, on the very specific issue of domestic violence, Ryan, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a black and white issue. I mean, it's bad. It's abhorrent. It is vile. That is an easy call to make for me and anybody else. And I think all leagues, including the National Hockey League, should be vigilant on this. And I realize this is constantly in the news, probably more so in some of the other leagues, uh, the NFL and, and, and the NBA um, and Major League Baseball. But hey, listen, hockey's never been immune from any of the other problems that plague professional sports or society, and, and they're not in, in, their, in this instance. Now, to Ryan's point, I, I'm not sure what my criticism of the Arizona Uber driver has anything to do with here. There's, there's no equivalency between me thinking that what the Arizona Uber driver did, um, what I thought was a really underhanded deed, releasing a, a, a private video of the Ottawa Senators' Uh, players to get them in trouble with their team as a payback for whatever the driver was pissed off at them about. There, there's no equivalency there between that and, and domestic assault. There's no connection between that and what Austin Watson did, which, you know, in the case of Watson was not only totally unacceptable, but also illegal. So Ryan, I know you asked for black and white and in the big picture it is, but obviously within the context of domestic abuse, there are always going to be shades of gray, as there is with any illegal activity, and the law insists that there be shades of gray. You know, and that's why there's a distinction between a misdemeanor offense and a felony, not just for domestic uh, abuse or domestic assault, but all crimes. Some are misdemeanors, some are felonies. There's a sliding scale between black and white, and there's a lot of gray in between. Um, now, these accounts we got of, of Austin Watson's abuse of his girlfriend do not appear to be anything close to the accounts we got of former L.A. King defenseman Slava Voinov's abuse of his wife, which if you, we go back to the, the police reports and what was read out in court, uh, Voinov struck her face with a fist. He pushed his wife to the ground multiple times. He kicked her repeatedly while on the ground. He choked her three times. He pushed her into a flat screen TV where she cut her face. Uh, a wound over the eye that required eight stitches, bruising, red marks, scratches on the victim's neck, blood all over their bedroom. And from the lead prosecutor in that case, quote, evidence to suggest prior domestic violence involving Voinov. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not that, that this does not mean that Watson, that Watson's misdemeanor domestic assault should be brushed off as nothing because it wasn't nothing and it wasn't brushed off. The National Hockey League suspended him for 27 games. And from a legal perspective, Watson was placed on what they called that judicial diversion, which means as long as he abided by the terms of three-month probation, his, his case would be expunged. And were he to violate that parole, which he obviously didn't, 
Watson would have faced up to a year in jail. And, and that probation included that 26 weeks of a batter or intervention course, an inpatient treatment for drugs and alcohol. And, and Austin Watson's girlfriend, in her statement, she, she maintained she was more responsible than him, that, that what had happened between them wasn't domestic abuse, but the law in this case, and depending on the jurisdiction, I guess, is also pretty clear on this. The victims don't get to make the call or they shouldn't get to make the call on what is or isn't domestic abuse, and, and understandably so, um, for, for obvious reasons. So, so Ryan, to, to get back to your point, my perspective here is that as near as I can tell in this Austin Watson situation, the system worked the way that it's supposed to, the legal system and the NHL system to a point. Um, you know, Watson was charged. He pleaded no contest. He was given legal terms to follow by the court. And the NHL issued this 27-game suspension. And I, I do tend to agree with you that it's extremely unfortunate um, uh, that the suspension was reduced from 27 to 18 games by the arbitrator. Generally speaking, I'd run on the campaign that I, I'd like to see leagues err on the high side than the low side of all suspensions for domestic abuse. But I also acknowledge that the rule of law always has to be followed. Um, you know, professional sport leagues can't simply pull a big number out of the air, even if it's a hot button issue like domestic abuse. And we can all agree 100 percent that domestic abuse is absolutely reprehensible. And and I, I know that domestic abuse, Ryan, is something that you're very passionate about. And I understand you being very upset with the National Hockey League Players Association for appealing on Watson's behalf and the arbitrator reducing that suspension. But, but here's what I would say about that. I don't believe for a moment that the National Hockey League Players Association is pro-domestic abuse because they appealed. Not at all. Um, but as the PA said in its statement, um, they are obliged to make sure that the National Hockey League follows the rule of law and was followed in handling out, ha handing out suspensions to its members. Every system needs checks and balances. And, and every offender, no matter how heinous the crime is, is entitled to a fair defense. And and I just say that sports leagues like the NHL should have to justify those decisions on disparities of sus suspensions. You just can't pluck a number and say 40, 60, 80, life. It doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. The law doesn't work that way. And so you and I, Ryan, can generally speaking on principle, bemoan that the, the reduction occurred um, as the NHL bemoaned it. Um, but we, again, in our case, you're right, we don't know all the information and whether the NHL was able to justify the 27 games. Um, and it's okay to be mad at the arbitrator for making the ruling, and, and I'm cool with that. Um, but in any case, for, for a really black and white issue, that is domestic abuse, is it's abhorrent, it's vile, totally unacceptable, we can't get away from those shades of gray that come with each individual case. And, and I do understand if that angers and offends you, Ryan, but there's no escaping it. Now, as for Watson and his girlfriend, here's what I really hope. I really hope that it's all behind them and that, you know, that this experience has led them both now to be in a better place than they were on June 16th 
And I do understand the desire for punishment or justice or whatever you want to call it. But for me, the ultimate goal in, in any, any action is hoping that it leads everyone to a better place where um, the offense never happens again. And, and as a postscript of, to all of this, I do have one message for Ryan Wicks, and it's this. Ryan, you really need to dial things down a notch. Now, I get that Ryan is passionate about this issue and that he's been deeply and, and personally affected by it. Understood. But when Ryan emailed his questions on Watson to the Bobcast, and I didn't immediately respond to them in the episode before this one, he kind of went off. On November 25th, um, Ryan sent me this email. Wow, not even one word about Austin Watson or domestic abuse, Bob. Not even email to me. At least the boys at the Fantasy Hockey Podcast responded in long form. You must be too big time to care, eh? Oh, by the way, Chris Weidman got traded for the Uber incident. You will go all in, mistakenly calling the Uber driver a douche and a scum of the earth, yet you don't touch Watson? Looks like Watson matters in deeper bangers leagues, boys. Don't be the weak POS that picks him up just because you're bad. I don't need to pick up domestic abusers to win fantasy hockey, and I also don't, don't need to watch games. And unlike Bob, I will talk about it. I'm erasing the Bobcast from my device's services. Thanks for nothing other than relentlessly plugging your book. Try having a show more often than every two weeks. Lazy. That from Ryan Wicks. And um, then he followed it up one more uh, with, I guess you win as the subject line. And after Austin Watson in one of his games back, um, after suspension, got a hat trick. He did a screen cap of Austin Watson celebrating the hat trick. And then a couple of days after that, he came back with another email that said, if you had spammed opinions like Watson, uh, sorry, if you had spammed opinions about Watson, like you spammed 11th hour Nylander bullshit, we may have gotten a foot in the door of decency, but nah, go for clickbait. You know, the subject of Watson would get you a lot of views too, right? You can't have it both ways. Thanks again for nothing so far. I'm aware you mentioned it once briefly, Ryan Wicks. I don't normally go after Bobcast listeners like that, but, um, and I, and I don't, um, I only included those emails because I want to make a larger point um, because of them. So I'll say two things to all of this. Number one, I try never to shy away from any subject matter, but you know what? There's only so many questions that can be answered on the Bobcast. And truth be told, I didn't answer Ryan's question about Austin Watson in the previous Bobcast episode simply because I didn't have the time to seriously prepare an answer. And hell, this is a subject matter that requires serious thought and consideration. And I know a lot of people get upset that I don't devote enough time to this issue or that issue that happens to be paramount in their lives. But the reality of my job, and I've said this many times before, and I'll continue to say it, is that I don't do too many deep dives on any one subject because I'm so busy covering little aspects of all of the NHL to say nothing of the NHL draft, the World Junior Championship, on and on it goes. And the second point I would make, and this isn't just for Ryan, but for everybody, maintaining some degree of civility is never a bad thing. I mean, being civil is not very fashionable these days. And I understand, I, I get where we're at, but judging people, being outraged, it, it, it seems to be how so many people are rolling now. And, and this is just my two cents, but sending abusive and insulting emails 
because you're disappointed that I didn't immediately respond to what you said or how I responded um, doesn't measure up to to what you were looking for. Um, It's not a good look for anybody. And and the reason I bring this up and I talked about the larger issue is I, I found this happening to me and to a lot of people a lot more lately. And that is, if there's somebody out there like Ryan or other people who feel like they're on the on the right side of a really righteous cause, they think because the cause is so righteous and they're on the right side of it, if they perceive somebody isn't measuring up in their eyes, it gives them the right to attack them verbally and maybe abuse them verbally. Um, anyways, I, I just... A little plea for a little bit of civility, um, which I know is hard to come by. But uh, in any ways, onward and upward. And Ryan, I sincerely do thank you very much for the original email. And I thank you for raising what's a, a really important issue, not only in our game, but society. And I hope you appreciate the fact that I tried to answer it to the best of my ability. And uh, we'll move on from there. Okay, let's move on to some other questions here. This one comes from Trevor in Suris, Manitoba. Hi, Bob. This week, the NHL announced that the cap will likely rise to $83 million next year, an increase of $3.5 million from this year. I would like to know why the players allow this to happen. If they don't want to pay so much escrow, then why do they allow the artificial inflation of the cap? That from Trevor Peliquin from Service Manitoba. Great question, Trevor, and, and you're bang on. Um, when the inflator is applied to the cap um, and the cap grows, um, not necessarily because of legitimate growth of revenue, um, but because they can artificially increase it with the inflator, the PA and the league can agree to do that. Um, and this $83 million figure does include some percentage of inflator, not the full 5%, not zero, but somewhere in between, uh, you're absolutely correct. But the simple answer, and we've talked about this before, is the reason the National Hockey League Players Association wants to make sure that the cap goes up is because there are there's a different class of unrestricted free agent or restricted free agent every July 1st. And if the cap doesn't go up organically or artificially, then you've got this group of restricted free agents and unrestricted free agents going to their union and saying, "Hey, why was I? Why was it my my class, the first class, to have zero growth on the salary cap? These teams don't have money to offer me. Why are you doing this to me? You didn't do it last year. You didn't do it the year before. You've never done it before. So all those other players in the National Hockey League got the benefit of the inflator, and I'm not getting it. That's not fair. And that's basically the cycle that the National Hockey League Players Association is in. They can't cut the cord and say there's going to be zero growth this year. Now, I should point out, of course, that, that revenue is growing in the National Hockey League. And if, as I said, if the in, if if the inflator was zero percent, the cap would still go up a little bit, um, probably about one point five million dollars. Um, so what they do is rather than apply the full five percent, in recent years they've been modifying it, and that helps a little bit with escrow. And it's you know like being a little bit pregnant. I mean, uh, the players still get the benefit of of some inflator. Um, of the cap, but uh, they don't get the full benefit of it. 
and so that's kind of where the the PA is is uh, is on that front. So um, I should point out too that the um, the the range the governors were given for the cap next year projection is 81 to 85 million, and that the 85 million would be if they had the full five percent inflator, the 81 million or thereabouts would be the uh, uh, zero inflate zero percent inflator and. Uh, Let's just hope the revenue continues to grow and it's more organic than artificial. But um, you asked the question and that's kind of the cycle that the, the, the PA and the league have gotten themselves into in, in terms of the use of the inflator. Next question comes from Michael Stafford. He starts off by saying, probably a popular question today. With the Seattle expansion approval and Arizona being realigned to the Central Division, does that mean certain cities are in a better position for potential Arizona relocation? Or does it just solve the current problem? And if relocation were to happen, they would cross the potential realignment at that time. Uh, More the latter than the former. Um, The NHL was simply looking for the path of least resistance. Seattle's coming into the league in 2021. They need to be, they must be in the Pacific Division. So that means somebody's got to come out. Um, The one team that comes out is Arizona, moves to the Central Division. Arizona's not overly happy about it. The teams in the Central Division don't love having Arizona in uh, in the Central Division. But it was the simple and easiest way to do things. The National Hockey League did not want to remake their map. They did not want to go to a new schedule matrix. There's no talk of doing eight divisions of four teams. They like their four divisions of eight teams. They like what they've got right now. And uh, so as such, they just simply decided one for one swap. Boom, done. Now, as for the relocation issue you're talking about, Everybody seems to think that Houston could be a good relocation site for the National Hockey League and that if the Coyotes can't make a go of it in Arizona, <clears throat> excuse me, if the Coyotes can't make a go of it in Arizona and they're in the Central Division, hey, perfect. They can move to Houston and everything would be geographically set. Houston, of course, would be a natural in the Central Division. Here's the only thing about Houston I would say. When the governors were meeting in Sea Island, Georgia, For all the talk of Houston being the logical next spot for the NHL, either through relocation or maybe an expansion many years down the road, um, the sense seems to be that the the government agency that controls the arena that the Houston Rockets play out of there, that there's no real strong desire to to have the National Hockey League there. And as such, with a a government-run arena there, there's there's no burning desire for an ownership group to pop up to get what they would get a really favorable arena deal in Houston. So so right now for as much talk as Houston gets for a relocation and or expansion down the road, I, I I don't think there's a warm fuzzy there for the National Hockey League or vice versa, and uh, what have you. Now <clears throat> I did make a few waves in a really lame sort of way with insider trading this past week. When I mentioned that Houston doesn't seem to be on the radar, but something to keep an eye on, and it's very down, far down the road, and very tentative and and not at all solid. But I, I'm here to tell you that Austin, Texas, which is currently a minor league hockey city, uh, where the Dallas Stars farm team, the Texas Stars, play, um, uh, with an 8,000 seat arena, uh, they're there's an intriguing element to the whole Austin market. Um, it's a it's a 
burgeoning area in the United States. It's it's really kind of a niche thing for music and entertainment and lifestyle and what have you. And it was suggested to me simply that down the road many years, if Austin were to have an arena that was much larger than the one that's currently there, that it could be the type of market that the National Hockey League would look at. And so just, again, I'm not saying the NHL is going to Austin. I'm not saying there's any expansion coming. I am saying that there's some intriguing elements to the concept or the idea of Austin uh, as a hockey city. And uh, we'll see where things go from here. But right now, man, let's just get Seattle in the league in 2021. And we'll talk about other stuff years down the road. Uh, Next question comes from Justin Labano. Um, Hey, Bob, just wanted to know a little behind the scenes on how a deadline day, such as the Nylander Nylander deadline day, for example, works when you, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun are all present. In this example, I believe Darren Dreger broke the actual news that Nylander had signed with Toronto, but you backed it up with considerable contract details shortly thereafter. Uh, is this predetermined going in what role you guys will play and how do you choose? Also, and this is the important question from Justin in Connecticut, where can I get a wine glass like the one you tweeted, Christmas present for wife? Okay, well, I'll get to the wine glass in a second. Uh, as for a, a day like the Nylander thing, uh, it's it's different than trade deadline day. Trade deadline day, we're all hands on deck. We're all in the studio. We're all working together. And I should point out quickly that the best part about working at TSN is getting to work with Darren Dreger and Pierre Lebrun, two of the very, very, very best in the business, dear friends, and we love working as a team, and we do work as a team. And um, uh, so trade deadline day and free agency day, we're all in the studio together. Uh, working as a team and and the level of teamwork that we have is is it's really incredible you cannot believe to know how many times one of us will break a big story um, or tweet out news and it's entirely because the other two guys paved the way for it to happen um, with with tips or information or confirmations and uh, I know if you talk to Darren or you talk to Pierre They'll say the exact same thing. Uh, best part of our job is, is is that synergy that we've got working together. As far as the Nylander day goes, that was a weird day because it was a Saturday. Um, I'd had an incredibly busy schedule, and I was going to be home for the day, but obviously working and trying to chase down all the, the latest, greatest information. Darren Dreger was actually doing a regional broadcast of the Ottawa Senators in Ottawa and was physically on site for the Eric Carlson returns to Ottawa game with James Duffy and Mike Johnson um, in the rink in, in Ottawa. So once the game was over, he was like sitting there trying to trying to track things down. And, and you are correct. He, he broke the news that the, the Nylander deal was six year deal with Toronto was done. Pierre Lebrun was with his kids and family in London, Ontario at a hockey tournament and I've been there, done that too many times to count. And it's uh, it's always a challenge to be there tying your kids' skates um, and trying to gather information, stay on top of things, tweet out, and uh, be very much in the mix, which Pierre was. And uh, so that's kind of where it all sets up. And we constantly are in conversation with each other. 
and um, there's, there's there's no prearranged thing on you know anybody gets anything just fire away, but as I said before, quite often um, you know I'm going to Dregs and asking him for his help or Pierre's help, and they're offering up this or that, and we work together as a team. So that is how that is done. Uh, as for the wine glass, um, if you go uh, on my Twitter account, um, you'll go through the the pictures. You'll see. Uh, a glass that it's not a stemless glass. It's the opposite of a stemless glass. It's a stem wine glass with no base. It's actually got a flat spot on the side of the the bowl of the glass, so you can lay it down. It is very aptly named the uh, Zalto Gravitas wine glass. Um, the slogan for it. I don't think Zalto is going to borrow this slogan anytime soon. But my pal Frank Saravelli, uh says this is a wine glass that shows just the right amount of douche because it is a little pretentious looking, but it's a fantastic glass. And, and I would go and again, I don't get anything from Zalto from, this is not a paid endorsement. This is merely, I, I bought some Zalto wine glasses and I really like them. They're very expensive in Canada. They're 80, 90 bucks a glass per glass. And in the States, the, the Zalto Gravitas one that lays on its side is I think 60 or 65 bucks. So Justin, if you want to get your wife the Gravitas glass for Christmas, just Google Zalto, Z for you, Z-A-L-T-O, Gravitas, G-R-A-V-I-T-A-S, and you should be able to order it online or find it somewhere in your your town in Connecticut. But um, they have regular wine glasses that are incredibly thin, incredibly strong, um, but greatly enhance the wine experience and I would highly recommend them and as I say I'm not getting paid to tell you that um, I just uh, passing along what I really like about those uh, those wine glasses they greatly enhance the experience so go for it Merry Christmas um, another wine oriented question to a degree this one comes from Brett hi Bob my fiance and I are taking our first trip to Canada to celebrate our engagement at the end of December as well as watch the New York Islanders play John Tavares in the Maple Leafs for the first time. Seeing how well Tavares has been doing with the Leafs, I was wondering if you had any wine bar recommendations in the city that could potentially make us forget how much we miss JT with the Islanders. Thanks so much for all the free content, and we look forward to our first visit to Canada. Uh, P.S. I recently saw your tweet about the new Air Canada terminal at LaGuardia, and after driving by the construction daily, I'm looking forward to seeing how it turned out. Well, Terminal B, Air Canada, LaGuardia is absolutely gorgeous. Um, As for the wine bar recommendation, I don't really go to wine bars in Toronto. My wine bar is in my family room, uh, usually with a hockey game on, and my uh, Zalto gravitas glass sitting on the table with some really good wine in it but what i would suggest well first off congratulations to you and the fiance um on the engagement on the first trip to canada and to our great city here in toronto it's a fantastic city there's so much to do and what i am going to do though is i'm going to give you a restaurant recommendation and again i'm doing this because i like the restaurant not because i get anything free there this is not a paid ad for a restaurant the restaurant is um called la palma l-a space capital p-a-l-m-a 
And it is on, I believe it's on Dundas Street West in the Trinity Bellwood area of Toronto. It's a fantastic Italian restaurant. It's got lots of really great wine. And it's just got a cool vibe um, in a cool neighborhood. And um, I was there recently with my wife, Cindy, and my son, Sean, and his fiance Sydney. And we just had a really nice dinner and a great time. And I decided that if anybody was asking for a restaurant recommendation or a place to go in Toronto, that I would tell them I really enjoyed La Palma. So I hope you get over the Tavares thing. He's playing lights out for the Leafs. And um, if you get to La Palma, let me know how you liked it. If you don't, there's plenty of other places in Toronto. And uh, enjoy the trip. The last hockey question of the day goes to Brandon Neat from Mississauga, Ontario. Uh, Hey, Bob, with the recent news that both Matthew Savoy in Alberta and Shane Wright here in Toronto have applied for exceptional status in the WHL and OHL respectively, I am just curious if there is anyone who has applied for exceptional status that has not received it. I know I've heard that John McFarland applied for it after his big bantam year with the 1992 year of birth junior Canadians, but I haven't heard of anyone else. A guy like Tyler Benson put up massive numbers before being drafted to the WHL, and there were rumblings he might apply, but I don't know that he ever did. On a side note, Shane Wright is very impressive in the handful of games I've seen him play for the Don Mills Flyers. I'm looking forward to tracking the rest of his year with Don Mills, and as he progresses in the OHL and beyond, thank you for your time, Brandon Neat. I should also point out I got an exceptional player question from Chad Campbell, who said, Hi, Bob. I was curious with the recent applications for exceptional status by Shane Wright and Matthew Savoy. If you know of any time someone applied for exceptional status but did not get accepted, keep on doing what you're doing, Chad Campbell. Um, On kids not getting exceptional status, I personally am not overly comfortable going down that road. I honestly don't even love the fact that it becomes public knowledge that these 14-year-old kids apply for exceptional status because if they don't get it, um, then everybody's aware of that. And then there have been one or two instances, certainly one instance anyways, that Brandon alluded to. Um, But I I personally don't focus on on that part of it. Um, And yet here we are reporting that two 14-year-olds, Matthew Savoy in St. Albert, Alberta, and uh, Shane Wright, who plays for the Don Mills Flyers in the Greater Toronto Hockey League, have applied, met the, the December 1st deadline for um, applying exceptional status. Um, anyways, it's it's a it's a tough one, but um, it's the nature of the beast in hockey, isn't it? When when you see the, many of the kids doing what they do at the age they do it, whether it's Connor McDavid or John Tavares and others and yet there have been other players that have gotten exceptional status that haven't turned out to be quote-unquote exceptional at the professional level or projected to be exceptional at the professional level guys like Sean Day and and Joe Valeno although Joe Valeno is still very much a prospect and I'll see him at the World Junior Camp this week um, I can only tell you this I was at the um, Whitby Silverstick tournament and I saw Shane Wright play a game for the Don Mills Flyers and he is by all accounts um, head and shoulders, the best uh, prospect for this year's OHL draft, even though he's a year younger than everybody else. And the exceptional player status, I wrote about it in detail in my book, Hockey Confidential. Uh, it was a story about Connor McDavid, but it was also a story about the process 
of getting exceptional status in uh, in Canada and um, the pros and cons of it and everything that they have to go through. And so I'll just leave it for Hockey Canada to do its due diligence on deciding whether Matthew Savoy and Shane Wright merit exceptional status. Um, but you would think the very first criteria on from the hockey side of things, never mind the physical, emotional, mental um, hurdles that need to be overcome to make sure that these kids are equipped to, to play against kids four or five years older than them. But the very first criteria really should be if, if we make this kid exceptional, is he going to be the best kid in, in the OHL or the WHL draft class? And I would suggest if he's not, then I'm not sure that necessarily uh, should apply, but nevertheless, um, that's the process that they'll, they'll go through. One thing worth noting here, a little bit interesting, is Matthew Savoy is a 14-year-old in St. Albert, as I said. I was looking at his birth date, January 1st, 2004, which is to suggest that if he was one day older, he would, in fact, have been in last year's WHL Bantam draft. So, yeah, he's, he's, an, he's an underager, but by one day. Um, and Shane Wright is a January 5th birth date and in 2004. And I know that's going to get everybody on the whole early birthday, late birthday thing. And what an advantage it is in hockey to be born in, in the early part of January, um, where you get to be almost a year older than a lot of the players who are considered the same age as you. Um, but, uh, thought that was worth noting a little bit. The the other interesting talking point about Matthew Savoy in St. Albert is that, to my knowledge, um, there's never been anybody in the Western Hockey League that's even applied for exceptional status before. And obviously, there's never been anybody. And the WHL, when I say the WHL, I don't know if the league does. Maybe it does. But certainly, I can tell you this. The guys that own and manage and coach and uh, the Western Hockey League culture and, and establishment, if you will, are so vehemently opposed to the whole idea of exceptional player status. They think it's an Ontario thing or a Quebec thing, but mostly an Ontario thing, and it mostly has been. Um, so they're not big on that bandwagon, but they don't make the decision. Hockey Canada does. And so it's interesting because the system for drafting players in the Western Hockey League is different than in the OHL or the QMJHL. There's a bantam draft, so they draft 14-year-olds. Matthew Savoy was getting is getting drafted this year no matter what, whether he gets exceptional status or not. Getting the exceptional status would simply mean that he's allowed to play full-time in the WHL next season as a 15-year-old as opposed to only having the five-game cup of coffee slash trial um, that is, that is um, ordained by WHL rules. So th that's an interesting distinction there. And uh, so we'll see how it all plays out, but um, we'll keep an eye on, on all of that. So good questions from Brandon and Chad on exceptional status as it relates to Matthew Savoy and uh, Shane Wright. The final question of this episode of the Bobcast goes to a very good friend of the show, Alan Steele from Medford, Massachusetts. Alan Steele loves the Bobcast. He's a constant contributor in terms of asking questions. 
And I haven't received it yet, but I am led to believe that waiting for me at the TSN shipping department is a lovely gift from Alan Steele. So never let it be said that my affection and uh, my interest cannot be bought. Um, Alan actually told me a long time ago because he was thanking me for the Peaky Blinders recommendation on Netflix many moons ago. And he was very kind and told me that he was going to send me a uh, sweatshirt from his company, Blue Line Holdings Corp. And uh, said sweatshirt, I believe, is now waiting for me in the TSN shipping department. So I look forward to getting that. Thank you very much, Alan. Alan, as I said, friend of the show, uh, also a friend of Kevin DuPont of the Boston Globe. And he does like to bust Kevin's balls on Twitter a lot. So that's another reason why he is a friend of the show and uh, gets his question answered here. And he also loves, loves, loves Netflix and TV shows and the banter that goes back and forth. So here's Alan's question. Hi, Bob. Always enjoy the Bobcast. Keep up the great work. Question. Will Floki get his act together on Vikings? He has been my favorite character on there. And there's another reason why I like Alan, because Floki is also one of my favorite characters. Now, Floki's become a bit of a bit part in the recent season of Vikings. Nevertheless, love Floki. Floki is this big, tall, rangy, crazed, psychotic, um, who's now become sort of this existential philosopher. Anyways, it's, uh, I just love Vikings. And what I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, and I am going to talk about some Netflix shows here, but Vikings in Canada anyways is on the History Channel or the History Network. Um, and the new season of Vikings is currently on. So every uh, Wednesday night, uh, when I'm never home, um, I PVR the Vikings episode and uh, very excited when I come back from my NBC trip um, to uh, to get into the next episode of Vikings. Now, Vikings isn't quite the same as it used to be. I really miss Ragnar Lothbrok. Um, nevertheless, Ivar um, the Boneless and uh, we had the return, uh, the last episode of Rolo, Ragnar's brother, Clive Standen, who I believe lives in Toronto. Um, anyways, it's a great show. I highly recommend Vikings. Um, I love the, the theme song at the beginning. I, most times I try to fast forward through most intros, recaps, and, uh, and songs at the beginning, but the Vikings song is so good. And um, it also underlines that I love these historical um, series like that. So Vikings is awesome. Um, shoot it into my veins. There's another one on, and I've talked about this at length before on the Bobcast, Outlander. Love the Outlander. The uh, uh, Jamie, Jamie Fraser from Clan Mackenzie and, uh, and his lovely wife, Claire Sassanak. And um, it's been, the Diana Gabaldon novels um, on the for Outlander, um, you know, it's it's woven its way through Scotland and through France, and and now Jamie and Claire find themselves in in North Carolina and prior to the Revolutionary War, and it's got a little bit of time travel, but it's not crazy on the the science time travel front, and it's it's just good stuff. Great story and 
a lot of romance, there's a lot of intrigue, there's a lot of violence, and uh, it's just a terrific series. So I highly recommend, if you're not already doing so, um, Outlander and Vikings. Outlander, by the way, the early seasons of Outlander you can get on Netflix. Um, not sure where Vikings is found, um, what, uh, what service streams that, but uh, highly recommend it as well. Which brings us back to Netflix and the Vikings. <laughs> um, I, the, the third season of The Last Kingdom is, uh, is out now. And uh, I binge-watched the entire third season recently. And it, it, it's a really good show. And I used to love Vikings a lot better than Last Kingdom. But this third season I found of, of Last Kingdom, which is very similar to Vikings in, in the terms of the time period, um, and that's where I said, I am Uhtred, son of Uhtred. Uhtred, of course, is a uh, uh, born a Saxon, raised a Dane, uh, heavily conflicted between the, uh, uh, the the Saxons in Wessex and Northumbria and East Anglia. And again, shoot all that stuff in my veins. I love the, the, the medieval stuff and the, the Danes and the Vikings in Britain, but... Uh, uh, it's 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 great stuff, and I highly recommend uh, you get into The Last Kingdom on Netflix. Uh, another great Netflix show that I watched a number of weeks ago, Bodyguard. It's uh, it's a six-season one. It's set in modern times, and uh, it's really cool. And uh, it features the guy, I think it's Richard Madden is his name, and he played Rob Stark in Game of Thrones. Um, but that's a cool six-series season one season, six series, sorry, one season, six episodes um, that you can get into. And uh, I thought it was really, really good. I'm, I'm currently watching Shetland on uh, Netflix, like it also. It's set in the Shetland Islands, Scotland, and it's a copper show, uh, like all the other British copper shows. It's really well done. And um, you might need subtitles for that one. Uh, I'm not kidding. Um, I can handle real strong accents. Listen, my dad had a great Belfast accent, so I'm pretty good with British, Scottish, Irish um, accents. But man, oh man, Shetland, sometimes even I have to rewind it and say, what the hell did he say there? And uh, one of the cameramen at NBC, who also was a big Peaky Blinders fan when I was talking to him the other day, he said when he watches Peaky Blinders that he has to turn the subtitles on because those English accents are so, so strong. So anyways, um, there we go. I just wanted to uh, to update you on potential Netflix options. Um, and a luxury consultant, son Sean McKenzie, also informs me that the third Psalm documentary is now available for viewing. Uh, I believe it's available on iTunes for fourteen ninety nine. Psalm 3, I think it's called. $14.99 to buy it on iTunes, $5.99 to rent it. Um, if you haven't seen Psalm, the original Psalm, or Psalm 2, Into the Bottle, uh, they're both available on Netflix. And if you're at all into wine and documentaries and characters, it's, uh, it's good stuff. So Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, uh, Shetland, Bodyguard, um, The Last Kingdom. Oh, I see one on there I haven't looked at yet, but it's new episodes. Narcos, Mexico. So I, I'm going to have to get into that at some point. And as I said, Vikings and Outlander. 
There's the rundown for Alan Steele, and I hope Floki gets his act together. They were talking about making him a human sacrifice on the last episode. I'd like to see Floki get right back into the mainstream here. Um, and uh, I hope everybody enjoys the Netflix recommendations. Thanks to Alan Steele. Thanks to everybody. Went a little longer on the Bobcast than usual. Had to deal with some heavy stuff on the, uh, the old domestic abuse things, but uh, that's what we try to make the Bobcast a little bit different every week and uh, hope there's a little something there for everyone. Have a good one. Have a great weekend. And we'll be back at you uh, with the pre-Christmas edition of the Bobcast in two weeks. Thanks. Take care. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's At TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.